Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Integrated Rhythms episode part two of the Norma Miller stand-up episodes. Uh, we're here with Jasomo Salamani. We're here with our good friends, Andrea Gordon, Julia Loving, Laurel Ryan, and Michelle Stokes. And we hope that you had a great time in the first episode. More of that is to come in the second episode. By the way, as a reminder, we cannot give you enough content warnings for this episode. There are so many content warnings we could give you. We're talking about 1970s stand-up comedy, and there's some racial terms used in the comedy. There's even some, uh, we even discussed some Asian American racism here in this episode, racism against Asian Americans. And we have a, uh, a joke about sexual assault which we discuss, you know, in, in detail about like how is it appropriate to make jokes out of that kind of thing? Should it ever be appropriate? What are the, what are the boundaries of comedy? Should there be boundaries of comedy? We discuss all that kind of stuff. And so uh, by no means do we, you know, take it for granted that we're listening to this comedy. We try to put it all in context and discuss it. However, all of that said, we know that you just might not be into listening about that kind of stuff right now. And that's totally understandable. We hope that you would come back and enjoy some future episodes of Integrated Rhythm. If you want to stick with it, here we go with Norma Miller's stand-up episode two. Integrated Rhythm with Chisomo and Bobby. When you know I'm trying to move into a groovy neighborhood, when I went to this apartment house, this cat come telling me there was a two-year waiting period for this apartment. What kind of jazz is that? So, you know, I did when I was leaving, I dropped a $100 bill in the basket. I wasn't home an hour before this cat called me and said, Miss Miller, we got an apartment for you. And when I moved in, the guy come the next day and said, you know that $100 bill you dropped in that basket? It was no good. It was counterfeit. I said, yeah, that's why I threw it away. <laughs> to the doctor. He said, Doc, you got to do something to me. I got a real problem. He said, you see, I'm making it with my secretary two and three times a day. And the doctor said, well, that ain't too bad, man. You know, some of you cats can really make it. So he said, but you don't understand. I'm also making it with my girlfriend two or three times a day. So the doctor said, that still ain't too bad, but you don't understand. I'm also making it with my wife two or three times a day. I'd say, well, damn, man, you better stop taking yourself in hand. He said, I do, two or three times a day. There's just one thing that I, I, I've noticed so far, which I think is not, it's not hugely common anymore about the way, it, about her delivery is telling jokes about situations that she's not a character in. And then, I think that a lot of comedians now, when you watch stand-up specials, they're like, I knew a guy, or in my house, my wife, blah, 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 but all of her jokes, like, so far have been, you know, a guy and his doctor, a kid who curses too much, and I don't know if I have much to say about that. It's just kind of interesting because you don't really hear that kind of setup on a joke as often now as, as this, this has been all of them so far. You know where you do hear that? Hmm. Christian church sermons from the pulpit. <laughs> a young no. boy was walking one day and you're like, oh, here we go. This is going to be 20 minutes. But yeah. 
That that is true. I forgot about that. She said, I forgot about that. Hey, been to a church in a minute. Oh, you just called yourself out. Much like many teachers like myself, pastors want to think of themselves as stand-up comics sometimes. So then they do that. Actually, I do that in sermon writing class because I went to seminary school. There Ooh. is like this like breakdown on how you write a sermon and popular ways to get like your point across or to put your parable or whatever the case is. And then you have to then give your sermon. So you have to give two sermons in this semester of like sermons 101. But yeah, they talk about that. They talk about ways that you can. And it's like, tell a story of, tell a story, make it like creative, make it tangible. If you make them laugh, they'll like, they'll uh, connect with you a little bit more. Like they talk about like, tell them a joke. (laughs) They don't say that explicitly, but they do talk about like how you're supposed to like write it and like be a storyteller because that's what people are interested in for sermons. That's really funny. I had not made that connection, but, but growing up in the black church myself, all of the stories are so made up. They're so fake. And it's like, they're <laughs> just like, um, At three but, hours, and then she got special healing from the Holy Spirit. <laughs> walks among us today. Sister, would you walk up on stage? You're like, that's Denise. Like, you know what I mean? They come up with these stories. Or it's like modern urban legends. Like, there oh. was one so foolish young woman who had a pet anaconda and she noticed the snake was lying next to her the unusual behavior and then she went to the vet and was like is there something wrong with my snake and the vet said oh they're just measuring you to see if they can eat you so the moral of the story is the devil's coming at you from all sides and you're like oh gosh you think you can handle it until it handles you and then you're like that's not snake behavior there was also eagle facts that went around for a while like Eagles will like knock their beaks off entirely and tear their talons out for regrowth. <laughs> Who who's doing that? But I heard it at like a baccalaureate at like in two different from two different pulpits. I was going to church a lot, I guess. Like a commencement speech. You're like, where are you getting these eagle facts? But yeah, you're right. It doesn't really happen in comedy anymore. And. <clears throat> I wonder if it's because what you were saying that like it's easier to make yourself the butt of the joke. You know what's funny is that like I feel like third party com- you know storytelling would in some way be easier to do cuz like so much of when I try to write a joke it's like well I can't write that joke from my perspective because I'm not a white man or I can't write that joke from my perspective because I don't pull those kinds of dudes, you know. I'm trying. But what I think it seems easier to be like Two people were in a situation and blah, 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 blah. What, it, it, what is not easy about that is for people to be engaged with it. Like to, for people to be like engaged with story after story after story. If I was trying to tell you about my life, then you most likely would be more interested than something that you know I made up. I definitely was struck by that about the album and about her comedy, especially in light of the fact that like this was the era of Richard Pryor who like, his comedy is his life and talking about his life. And I assumed, I don't know for sure, but I assumed that, that Richard was the one who really started pushing it in such an observational in a ways. Because, you know, when you hear stuff like, 
I mean, when you hear like Bob Newhart albums from the 1950s, it's this, it's the same thing. Like, did you hear the one about blah, 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 or let me set the scene for you. Like, you know, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, you have Richard Pryor coming along. And then, you know, as far as I know, like, again, in my limited understanding of comedy, that like that, that was the game changer in terms of observational comedy. So I would, I would posit that perhaps, perhaps Dick Gregory influenced Pryor in going in that direction because so much of Dick Gregory's comedy was about like his own experience in social activism and like, and which is why he couldn't get on a lot of stages, which is interesting because like Dick Gregory played mostly to black audiences and eventually they let him do other audiences where half of the audience walked out like they were seeing Norman Miller at late night. But the, you know, it, it became easier for Richard Pryor to have sort of that like in your face kind of, I don't know, delivery because other people had opened the way for him to be able to get more of those audiences that were mixed. And those mixed audiences were the ones that were like getting all of like the publicity or whatever. So it's like there were there were so many people who were kind of starting to do this thing, but they just didn't have an audience that could make them like the famous big name, you know. So we have to think about also what was going on in the black community at the time. You had a large black arts movement coming about where people were not afraid to say what they wanted to say. So Richard was a very much a part of that as well. You had the last poets coming out. You had all these different other facets of black life that were not ashamed and okay with, you know, Richard probably even, you know, cuts the, he, he starts wearing an Afro. You know, he has all these different things that are, are, are blessing him in a way to be a freer, freer black man in America, to be able to, to speak on different things about himself, about his community and all of that too. So, yeah. And Norma's living through that as well, <laughs> you know, because we're thinking about her in time, like, gosh, you know, this woman is coming from the 20s and the 30s, like to see, just to think about what she's saying at that time was a liberating thing for a black woman to be able to say. You know, like, let me just speak what's going on. Let me, I'm going to say what's going on. I'm going to say from a perspective in the community. I'm going to see from my, you know, like all of these different things going on for Norma as well. Yeah. And, and when, I, when I think, when I was trying to think about, like, for some reason it came to me, and I don't know if this is correct or not, but it seemed to me that Norma's album is very much like a party album was like the best way I could kind of like describe it in my head. Like, these are the jokes that you would tell at a party. You know, like, like it's, 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 yeah, there's social commentary in it. Yes, there's her life in it, but it's also at the end of the day, like, here's a funny thing to say really quickly to somebody to like, enjoy a moment with them. I could actually see her doing it in a club in Harlem somewhere, you know, like, there's a famous place that used to be in Harlem and they, they tore it, they not even tore it down, but they, out, you know, basically gentrified them out. I'm just trying to think of the name of the place right now. But I could see her actually doing it there, you know, in a community setting as well. And the people at the bar laughing and, you know, I could see the tables roaring and, and all of that. At one time, they were putting on one of the biggest shows here in Los Angeles. They hired the Forum. This cat was going to ball 50 chicks. I'm telling you, $10 a head. They packed the joint. And all the chicks was lined up, all ready for this cat to go into action. The lights were lowered, the music started, and this guy started working out. Man, he was working out, and all of a sudden, baby, by the time he got to 45, he petered out. 
The Peter. Peter, now. <laughs> the audience got mad, baby. They got riled up. They started booing and throwing things, demanding their money back. And the promoter said, what's the matter, man? What happened? He said, how should I know, boss? It went good at rehearsal. Sorry. So the... <laughs> The, the length of a joke, right? So, you know, with a little bit of like communication I've had with other comedians and stuff, they, they always talk about like jokes per minute. And like, you know, you want to make sure that like your audience is constantly laughing. And when you're new, jokes per minute are really important. When you're new, like no one's going to like you if they don't remember laughing that often. But that, the length of that joke, the setup. <laughs> But if you, as in like an experienced comedian, and like, and this is like the, the best example I can even think of is Dave Chappelle, right? Dave Chappelle can talk for 15 minutes without saying anything funny. No one cares. It's because they're so engaged, right? They're so engaged with whatever it is that you're saying that the joke, the payoff of the joke doesn't have to happen every, you know, 20 seconds, that they are satisfied with the huge buildup to like, it, almost a throwaway, almost a throwaway joke. But just the length of that joke and her being able to keep people engaged and listening intently and like close to hear how it's going to pay off is like a real skill that most people, most new comedians are almost too funny. Every sentence is funny, every, you know, because they have to like get people on board. But she has the power of holding people on for the entire thing. That, that that is just as powerful as the payoff of the actual punchline, which I think is pretty amazing. And her delivery, like her delivery, I've noticed again, again, maybe going back to creating that sense of a party album for me for some reason, like her her momentum is just it just blow it just keeps going strong. And maybe that's part of how she's like keeping up this like energy in the joke telling in the audience. And I think that I think you're right. I think that's part of it is that like if you like listen to her pace, it's almost like she's charging at the joke, and then she gets to the punchline and she throws it away. It's always like, eh, and this is how it ends, right? She's like freaking making a beeline to the thing, and everyone's like coming in close. They want to hear what's going to happen, and then at the end, it's so casual the way that she just lets the punchline like drip out. That like that's like sort of a a sort of the mastery of like storytelling where you can like charge up to the fit like people don't even realize the like frenetic pace almost that she gets there it makes it feel like the entire joke was just like i was casually speaking about the blah 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 and this how it went this how it went this happened next 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 anyways and it just throws it away and i think that that's really cool and not many people can do it really well you know we've even got chinese niggas man this chinaman walks into a bar man and he walks up to the spook cat and he says hey nigga give me a jigger now this boot looks at him, Jim, and pours him a drink like this and just looks at him and just cool. And then all of a sudden the Chinaman takes the drink down, turns around and he say again, Hey, nigga, give me another jigger. So this book say, wait a minute, man, you walking here with this kind of bullshit. Don't you come in here talking like that. How would you like if the cards were reversed if I walked up to you? You wouldn't like that. He said, now you get behind the bar. Let me walk up to you and see how you dig it. So now the Chinaman got behind the bar. Spook walks up to the Chinaman and he says, hey, chink, give me a drink. <laughs> Chinaman looked at him and said, we don't serve niggas in here. <laughs>
we're, li- we're a little bit mad that we're laughing. Yeah. <laughs> the whole time, because again, you're right, 1970s. So we're hearing words we haven't heard unless it's like many a year. Many a year. And we're like, did she say that? Did she say that? Oh my gosh, where is this going to go? Like already, like scared at the outcome of the joke. And then the joke gets you. See, this is why I said you, it has to be funny. <laughs> I don't know. I'm mad <laughs> saying, oh no, I know. I'm mad that I laughed. <laughs> Yeah. No, it's it, it. This is like the collection of like all the words that have been outlawed, right? Like it's like just. Like, where is this going? Like, if you, uh, we can call this section of our um, discussion like the index of words you should never use. So like. <laughs> yeah. But you're right. But she's still like it's like even though it's like the collection of things we shouldn't say, it comes together to be funny. Yeah, and it goes to your point, too, like, she's running to, like, the point, the point of the joke. So all these words are just, like, ping back, like, ping, 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 like, pinging back and forth really quickly. She's not stopping to, like, land on the word. It's just, go like, she's, the phonetics are just going, going, going. And then the punchline at the end, it's like, oh, dang, she got me. She got me. Yeah, I feel like this is what Julia has been trying to prepare us for the entire time. Julia was like, but you know how sometimes we shouldn't say, you know how sometimes it was okay and it's not. So I feel like. <laughs> and, and, and in 2022, we are laughing at that. I just. That's, that's, that's what my point was. Right. That right. was precisely what my point was. Well, so, so what, if there's a commentary to this joke, what, what do you think the commentary is? I think it's just about a shared experience of discrimination and then how it is possible for marginalized groups to discriminate against each other. Like there is still relevant commentary. Like there is a way to adapt that very joke to the like current climate. Yeah. Like, cause the commentary is just like, it is not nice to have racial slurs hurled at you. Yeah, yeah I, the commentary is racism. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, right. yeah racisms. <laughs> what the mess? <laughs> <laughs> the, I, I, the thing about the language in this joke that like I thought was interesting is that she starts out and she's like, blah blah blah, Chinaman. And then and that felt extremely offensive to me, but not as offensive as the word chink. And I'll tell you why. As a person listening and you know, like offering in criticism or whatever. I know that when she's setting up the joke, as as the speaker of the joke, she called a man a Chinaman. But then she switched when the the word was chink, it was the person in the joke talking to another person. So when they said nigga, that didn't bother me. But when she said, then this spook, and I was like, ah, Norma is calling the person a spook. Norma is calling this person a Chinaman. Whereas in the joke, it's two people hurling these slurs at each other. Those didn't hurt me as much, <laughs> didn't hurt my soul as much as Norma using these other two words. And that again is like the context of the time, right? Whenever this album came out, the words Chinaman and spook might have been the nice ways of putting it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And the slurs were saved for the actual dialogue between the two people. Anyways, like amazing payoff in that joke because you're already all like tense, like your butthole is so clenched the yes. entire time. 
Correct. I wanted to pluck a cherry with my butthole. <laughs> I was like, she's saying words I've never heard. I'm not supposed to say. Got spankings for it. Like, no, thank you. Oh, you were a little racist kid? No, I wasn't a racist kid. I wasn't allowed to say the N-word. Thank you very much. Or the spook word. <laughs> yes. Well, he said the spooks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. 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 But the, but the payoff was was so it was like you could forgive the rest of like how like rough that joke is because the payoff was was so good and the payoff doesn't like actually hurt anybody like the between like the two characters no one's actually getting hurt in that joke which is why it's it feels okay but it, it also feels very wrong and with you like I'm I'm really mad that yeah. like that I'm okay with that joke. So two things struck out at me. First off is I was questioning whether or not I should even play that track. And then I heard Norma Miller in my head saying- Play that damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you not going to play that track? That's right. That's what we're here to talk about. And then second of all, the way she laughs at the end of that joke. And it's right there in the clip. Like I was looking at the sound bar and the joke is like 30 seconds. Her laughing at it is like 15 seconds so she says that joke and then that laugh sounds like a cathartic laugh and so her laughing that much made me really look back at the joke and be like this joke is about how bad black people have it like like at the end of the day the the asian person makes the joke that you're not you're not allowed to be served here and like that just like damn and, yeah. and those were two things that kind of struck struck out at me and it's like that it's a thing again like the, she's the butt of the joke like we're the butt of the joke it's something that she identifies with so it kind of makes it okay but what's you know the the idea that like okay these the these two people in in this joke are hurling slurs at each other sets them both up as other as minority as disenfranchised as less than but the butt of the joke is is like I'm actually a little bit less than you. <laughs> like so like so that's that's where the like the payoff is. Like that's why the punchline works is because like these two people can both identify as we're the lowest of the low, but she still makes herself the butt of the joke by being like the black people are a little bit lower, you know. Yeah, and it's certainly something that if, if she was in California at the time, certainly these are types of conversations that were going on between the Asian and the African-American communities at that time that often had friction, you know, between the two, but not really looking at each other's struggles, you know, with regards to marginalization and, and oppression within those communities. So there was something certainly, you know, if she was in California at that time, LA or whatever, certainly this could have been a conversation between two people, you know, really. These conversations are still happening today with you know, between Black Lives Matter, Stop Asian Hate, like why are yes. we not better supporting each other? These yes. like, conversations have, I mean, so in many ways, like the, the joke is still extremely relevant, but it's, it's God, it just, if only we could just like change some of the words. <laughs> yeah, the vocab has got to change. Cause I'm like, like everything you said is true. Like the way the setup is, the way it works. But I'm like, can somebody from the other community listen to this joke all the way through to get to the payoff? Because yeah. it's tough to like, you're, they hitting these words and you're like, ooh, ow, ee, uh, ooh. <laughs> these ain't even supposed to yeah, be said it's anymore. Like, it's like e equal opportunity offense. Yeah, it's like, ah. And that's the intersectionality of the 19th century.
seventies comedy scene. <laughs> hey, you heard about it? the cat calls up the NAACP. He says, "I want to talk to the head nigger." The lady at the NAACP. Wait a minute, sir. This is the NAACP. You can't come in here and talk like that. He said, "Look, I want to talk to the head nigger." She said, "There ain't no head nigger here." He said, look, I got $15,000 to give to the head nigga of the NAACP. She said, wait a minute, I'll bring his ass down right here. <laughs> so you see, it make no damn difference, black or white. Turn off that light, sweetie. It comes down to a case of who washed. <laughs> I don't know what the last part means. Washed meaning like has money? I think it means like, I think. I think, you know, when you turn off the lights, you can't tell one thing from the other. It comes down to who washed is like who you can smell. I've never heard anyone refer to it as the NAACP before. I know. Every That's time you said it, I was like, whoa, I like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's different. NAA. Did you hear about the kid that was watching his daddy take a shower? So next morning at breakfast, the little boy said to his mother, he said, Mama, I happened to be watching daddy take his shower and I saw his peaches. Ma said, well, did he show you that dead limb that they're hanging on? I will say this is what I've noticed because I've been trying to do what you're doing, which is figuring out like the style I guess and I've noticed that like nowadays I feel like jokes have like this ebb and flow where one story feeds into the another story or feeds into or like at least the transitions are really easy like it's like speaking of sweaters but I noticed that her jokes are unrelated it's like they tell a story and then like the next stories are completely different people with completely different characters and I'm that I'm something I'm not used to nowadays because everything is connected to the, the the previous thing said. I mean, the two through lines I would say are sex and racism. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that's kind of it. <laughs> but I think you're right in that they one story feels very like sort of roughly juxtaposed to anything. Like here's a new thing I'm going to talk about, and and I do know like some comedians do that. And it is still like a thing that happens. There's a lot of comedians that like, you know, like that sort of Andy Kaufman style or like the Mitch Hedberg style or, or where you can, you can say a thing, get your laugh and then start a, a new thing. But it's, it's extremely un, uncommon. It's definitely its own, its own thing. One thing I was going to say about the two jokes that, that sort of bookended this last track. The first one was about the, the prostitute and the liver and how she hasn't rejected an organ and whatever. And the second one was about these sort of like loose women who, you know, basically traded experiences for sex, whatever. I would say that these two jokes are less likely to be told today than the first one about the, the women on the corner. So I think that these ones made the idea of like sex work or like being body positive or not being whatever, that, that sort of villainized that, I don't know, made it seem tawdry or wrong. So I wouldn't be able, we wouldn't be able to tell those two jokes today, but the first one seemed okay to me. You know, Bobby, I couldn't help also thinking about Paul Mooney as she's like saying some of these jokes. You know, Paul Mooney used to write for, for Richard Pryor, 
And some of his jokes, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of these scenarios that Norm was speaking about, I could hear Paul Mooney's voice as well. You know, it's just, just interesting <laughs> to say the least, you know, and certainly targeting our black bourgeoisie and certainly targeting, you know, just the, just the status quo, even within the black, the black hierarchy, right? So yeah, he, he used to really tackle things like that too. So hearing Norma doing it, is, is, it, it touches on a lot of what Paul Mooney also was doing. Yeah. I, Laurel said that, sorry, Laurel, Laurel had Laurel. said the through lines were racism and sex. But I think, as you mentioned, I think another through line is classism, right? Yes. So, and the intersections of like race and color is like race and class, you know? And so we saw that with, with the jokes that shall not be named. <laughs> so that we are kind of discussing like who is who is where in the um, hierarchy of, of society, right? Right. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's the classicism also shows up in that NAACP joke because, you know, when it comes down to it, it's like, oh, he's the president. You call, can't call him the head nigger, whatever. He's the president of the NAACP. Show some respect. Well, I got some money for him. All right, let me get that nigger right now. Is shows like that sort of like classist. Like, I, I think I'm somebody until I... <laughs> until I need a payday or whatever, that the I think classism is is a much better way of of interpreting both of those jokes. Yeah. Not to be too English majory, but having heard all this, now that I think about the cover, the cover is healthy, sexless, and single. So that gets the that like talks about sex. Then she, the her words out of her mouth are about it's still Snow White. But where is sex, right? It's obviously kind of a reference to, to race. And then she's dressed up like in this very obviously supposed to be like very grand kind of outfit, but in a way that also kind of seems to be poking for exaggerated caricature of, of grandiosity. Bobby, we're all nerds here. We appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Sorry, next. Yeah, I cut you off. No, I was just saying it with her blonde wig or platinum blonde wig. <laughs> you know? She's killing it in that wig, though. Like, <laughs> yes, yes. That wig looked good. So that, that's so, yes, that, so that wig looks good. Is that a modern context? Was she wearing it as a joke? Well, it's kind of like a Marilyn Monroe. What's the other lady who also died pretty young, but was like that kind of like baba boom platinum blonde? I don't remember her. I forget her name. But there was, you know, the the sex symbols of, like, the previous mm. decade were all who, were, who had died tragically young were, like, these, like, buxom blonde ladies. And even though she wasn't in, like, the Marin, the, the white dress mm -hmm. over the sewage grate, she, like, there was, like, evoking a little bit of that yeah. in, the, in the costume. And I believe at the time, too, they were always doing this juxtaposition between are blondes more fun or are brunettes? Are they, are they dull and dumb? Like, in the 90s, they did that, too, where it was always, yeah. like, the blonde women were the bombshells and blowing up people's marriages. They were the femme fatales. Some aspect of that is, like, being blonde It is it not obviously a natural or, like, common for, for a Black woman, obviously. So, like, I think it harkens back to, like, maybe the classism a little bit in that, like, I'm a classy person and, like, the blonde wig is, like, a symbol of... Uh, 
characteristically Caucasian, European Caucasian peoples. And so like it somehow elevates her in a way rather than like her maybe standard black wigs and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. And you hear about the black astronaut when he was launched, he didn't go to the moon. This astronaut went to Mars. Now when he got to Mars, there was nothing on Mars but chicks. And these chicks was whining and dining him. This cat was having a ball. The cat says to the lady president, he said, well, look, ain't nothing here but chicks. How do you keep your planet from becoming extinct? You don't have babies, do you? So the chicks say, oh, we have babies. So the cat say, you do? How you have babies? Ain't nothing up here but some chicks. So she said, oh yeah, come on and I'll show you. So she takes him to a laboratory. In case those of you who are dumb don't know what that word is. That's a laboratory. <laughs> Not laboratory, laboratory. And in this laboratory, they had a great big vat. And in the vat, they had a substance like wax. And this chick is over there, over this wax, and she's stirring. And just stirring. And just stirring. And all of a sudden, they dip down in this wax, and they pull up a baby. The cat say, God damn, that's weird. Now on Earth, we do it different. She said, you do? He said, yeah, come on in, and I'll show you. So he takes her into a room. They stay in the room three hours. When they emerge out of the room, the chick is smiling and everything, and the guy is fixing his tie. Then she says to him, she says, well, where's the baby? The cat said, oh, oh, that comes later, you know, about nine months. She said, then, why did you stop staring? <laughs> Just a side note, every time you say we're going on to the next track, I keep I get a little bit more nervous each track because I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what's going to be said. And this is really keeping me on the edge of my seat. I am enjoying myself, but it's keeping me on the edge of my seat. I mean, is that not sign of true comedic prowess as you're like, <laughs> oh, what, what's happening? <laughs> what's the new observation? <laughs> it's it's kind of like watching a horror movie, but instead yep. of like anticipating a scare you're like i'm about to laugh at something that's problematic <laughs> this is it, okay this is <laughs> because i'm afraid of laughing at something problematic. i feel like it's my analogy is more like going to an obstetrician so it's like you're fine and then you're sitting in the waiting room by yourself and then you realize you have to nervous pee like you're afraid of like what's like what's about to happen like you're just like okay before this starts let me just collect myself and make sure that all of my situation is all all together but in this in this last joke that whole idea of laboratory versus laboratory i think that this is <laughs> this is like a thing that i don't know if it's just black people who do this but like we for like we're lazy pronunciators i feel like there are some words that we do not say correctly, like culturally. Frustrated. Frustrated. Ax versus ask. Right? Like, oh, I have an ideal versus I have an idea. <laughs> just almost like, hey. No, I, I just had, there's a whole, this is a whole. Just, just um, almost saw the bat signal. There's, yeah, there's, there's a whole. So, um. Language person to the rescue. Also, we have a check it out, but I'm just going to say it. the Ebonics controversy on the podcast you're wrong about. Listen to it. So there's actually a historical understanding as to why black people pronounce things 
articulate things in a particular way that they do. But oh. I get what you're saying. Like, like Pacific versus specific, you know, like we, there's some things that we understand, but there's a reason and it, and it's well governed and it's not wrong and it's not lazy, but yeah. <laughs> so well, but, another way of thinking, but to your point, to your point, it is like pervasive, right? It, and un- uniformly understood. Right. And, and people are actually retraining their teachers how to go into certain um, communities and actually, because, no, it's not lazy. It is not, you know, all of that. But they're retraining their teachers to have a better understanding that, you know, no, they're not understanding or they're not, you know, miscommunicating. This is just how generationally they have been communicating with one another. So there, there's certainly a lot of, of new tides that's going into education with that. So, yeah, thanks to, to Soma for bringing that up. Yeah. But but to your point, like the thing that yeah. I think people would have access to more easily is like Louie and Ella's tomato tomato, right? Like like mm-hmm. let's call the whole thing off, right? Like there's this understanding that we there this is a this is a topic of conversation in the black community, how to pronounce things, right? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. I think my favorite thing though that the community does that I partake in. Is saying that I am the like I was sleep as opposed to I was sleeping. I become the thing that I was doing, and I, I like that. Yeah, I am the verb. I'm sleep. I like that. It's easy, easy breezy. It's more simple than adding all those other words to it. I was sleeping. Nah, nah, nah. I was sleep. Well, and I. Uh, sorry, I'm like, how much of a nerd should I be right now? Do it. Do it. Do it. Be it because it has to come out correct. Yes. (laughs) Well, I was was gonna say like the way that African American English uh, treats B forms is so interesting, interesting and intricate. And like as you're talking about this, like there, there's been some research looking at black kids and how they or speakers of African American English, like and how they understand different words. So like I, I was sleep. Like people understand that that means that you were sleeping but not like last night, but then also you were asleep nights before, you know, like there's this ongoing, it's an ongoing past action thing, the kind of like this present progressive, just like you would have, I was sleeping. Yeah. And how we know the difference between I was sleep and I've been sleep. I've been sleeping. Like there's. Yes. There are, there are rules and we know the difference. Yeah. And I love it. The Russian delegate flew into Washington. He wanted to contact President Nixon. So he calls the White House. He was told that President Nixon was in San Clemente out here in California vacationing. So then he said, well, then let me talk to Vice President Agnew. He said, well, Vice President Agnew ain't here either. He's getting his ass kicked with some students. (laughs) He said, let me talk to the Secretary of State. He said, the Secretary of State ain't here either. He said, well, damn, if the president ain't there, the vice president ain't there. The secretary of state ain't there. Then who the hell is running the White House? The cats say, we is. <laughs> this one is one that I, I don't know if I fully understand. Like, I have a thought. I think that what makes it funny is this sort of like the audacity of of the servants of the people of color running the white house like the sort of like 
oh, you guys, watch out, we're in charge. That's making them laugh. And I'm not really, I think that's like the joke is that like when, you know, those people leave the White House, guess who's in charge, y'all? The, 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 the brunt of the joke is on them, really, you know, because we are in charge when you're here, we're in charge when you're not here, either way, you know, and didn't you know that? <laughs> By the way, didn't you know that? You know, so that's, that was my take of it on it, yeah. Right, like who's, who's doing the real work? Yeah. I just, uh, just realized the title of that joke is called Black House as opposed to White House. Did you hear about the two chicks that's being raped? And one chick, while she was being raped, she said, God, help him, God, please, because he knows not what he does. The other one said, I'll be damned if this one don't know. <laughs> Anyone find that, that joke hard? <laughs> yes. I don't think any rape jokes of any kind are funny. I feel like they're like kind of because I feel like we've not solved raping. So it's like (laughs) when you joke about it, it's like, oh, when one in three people have been raped and you're making a rape joke, it's like, well, did we solve it yet? Because I think this is off limits. We haven't solved the problem enough to to make, I guess, to make the joke. I don't know. And they're never funny. She's like, someone got raped. <laughs> it's like, whoa, this is tough. Uh-oh. I was actually going to at you, Michelle. I was going to say this is that moment where I'm like, ah, I was like literally dying inside a little bit with that joke. I mean, arguably, we haven't solved racism either. So, but yeah. I, so there's something to be said about that. But I, I do think like, as a group of primarily women. (laughs) Also, I think there's like, culturally speaking, there is, it's easier to acknowledge that racism is a problem than it is to acknowledge that rape culture is a problem. Because it's a thing that like, regardless of your like, class, religious creed, whatever it is, you can be like, it is wrong that people are discriminated based on, on the color of their skin. But it's a lot harder to be like, you know, when you tell small children that they need to come give you some sugar, whether or not you're contributing to rape culture. And that's a little harder to like, okay, go get to grasp for some for some people. Yeah. Well, and, and arguably the institution has is longer, right? So women as property has been a thing that's been around for a very long time, but the specific type of racism that we come we have engendered in the US we 1619 right so but women have been property since like BC times like right since like a long 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 time ago especially when you look at like things in the Eurocentric perspective so yeah and it's and there's such a culture of silence when it comes down to black women being uh raped or you know sexually invaded that's what I'm gonna call it you know and it's not looked at the same way as when white women are, you know, when they all should be looked, you know, and, and, and treated the same way. So it coming from another black woman is a little bit harder to, you know, you know, sometimes people poke fun at things that are the most damaging to, you know, to take the sting out of it, I guess, the thorns out of it. But at the same time, it's not something that we can really play play with because it is such a a damaging thing, you know, a traumatic thing. Yeah, it's tough because I feel like the punchline of racism jokes 
I don't know. There's it's different than like the punchline of rape jokes because again, the punchline is always like you got raped. Psych. Just kidding. You actually did. Where I don't know. I I just think that's a tougher joke. Like I'm not. I don't know. You know me. I already said it. I'm not for a rape joke of any kind of any time because we haven't figured it out and no one actually believes people who this happens to or whatever. So it's tough. So I think that we've we've maybe heard this term a lot again because I keep bringing him up and I don't mean to, but like Dave Chappelle is in trouble, you know, right now with so many people because of this idea of punching down, where the person who is the butt of the joke needs to be either yourself or someone like above you, like a person who can take it. So the idea of of punching up means that you, when you, the butt of the joke, the person who was mocked is someone of a higher class, a higher stature, more money, more whatever. When you um, punch down, it's someone who's already the victim in a situation, right? Already disenfranchised, already poor, already um, a minority. But the butt of this joke is is the rape victim, is the person who is being raped is meant to seem like they're and some way they're enjoying it. And like, that is like right now, especially when people don't believe women is like the absolute worst kind of joke. So like in the context of that time, I don't know if it would have been considered punching down, but certainly today it would have been considered beating up. The, the, the narrative of that joke was like, there's the, you know, the Christian forgiveness that is often encouraged of, victims of assault that like, ah, oh, forgive them father for they know not what they does. And it's like this one actually perfectly aware of the wrong that they're doing. But it's like, I, I get it, but I don't like it. Uh-uh. I think another like prime aspect of humor is the element of surprise. Right. And so she cultivates this. She, invokes this a lot right so where she'll say something that is just utterly surprising throws you off guard and i feel like at the time that was something else that was used something like daring to touch a subject subject that shouldn't be touched at all but then knowing that we can get away with it because of the time frame but as michelle you mentioned like this is it's it's not something that we should be talked about and julia i loved what you brought up about black women in particular like when we look at the state of our of black women's romantic sexual personal endeavors as a whole like we are probably the people who are least cared for and then when you think about like the broad spectrum of everything like black trans women are the people who are the absolutely least taken care of and so it's yeah we're like we're the least matched of all the people like it's you know when we look at ballrooms for instance bringing us back to dance like we're often the people who are asked to dance the least even if we're indicating interest on the dance floor and so this idea of harming us in any way like digs deep right and so yeah yeah there's a history of there's a history of you know raping go from the plantations on you know and certainly I mean, is it a taboo conversation? Is she bringing it to us so that we can really think about the culture of rape? I, I, I don't know. But, you know, Black women, it, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. That's okay. 
That's okay. I could, I could, you know what? I can't really think of all of these. It's like all of these complexities in my brain floating around right now. But go ahead. <laughs> Do you think that joke could translate in years' time, maybe when we feel like we're far enough removed from the situation? Like it's too, I feel like the subject matter is too raw, right? Because it's still happening. People aren't recognizing what's happening. The rules still fall onto women to like hide their sexiness because we tempt men and this is why rape happens. But when jokes about racism happen, even though we know we experience it, is it because we feel like we're a little bit more far removed from it just ever so slightly so it's not so harmful like do you that's what i'm asking like do you think the i think you already i think you kind of said it it's because like so with jokes about racism like the color of my skin is not my fault so somebody's like attaching you know if i experience racism then like we already know that that's like the jokes around it are often how like it doesn't make sense. Like there are no logical reasons for racism or whatever, but women and other victims of rape are still being blamed for their assault. So I don't think that there's a context in which like it, it have to get, I mean, May it be someday when we all acknowledge that, like, the bad things that happen to people aren't their fault. But the, the, I think, like, you, you kind of laid it out already, is that it's, it's still, it, in many situations, and not just in American culture, mm -hmm. women are being, like, the onus is on them to prevent themselves from being assaulted. And not on the perpetrators of the assault. I, I, I think that's where, I, that's the reason why I think this joke can, will, will almost never work is because, is because no matter what this joke in, in, in any context, whether we've sort of, you know, quote unquote, assaulted or not, is it's always going to be punching down. It's always going to be a joke on the victim. And, and I've heard all jokes. I'm going to say something really controversial. I think I may have heard a funny rape joke before, but because the the victim the butt of the joke is the rapist and not the person being raped you know what i mean like i feel like if you can uh again punch up front like if the butt of the joke is a person who is considered to be the person in a position of power then people feel they feel like empowered to laugh that is the person that we all want to fail in in these situations and i think that makes it easier to laugh in another context possibly in the future when we're treating this with more respect and reverence for the actual huge problem that actually is. I wanted to also submit that when we think about oppression, like I think this conversation is great because it should remind us why is it that certain kinds of oppression are like, why is it that we are more comfortable with certain things? Because I, I keep thinking about racism, right? And because none of the types of oppression that we've talked about, classism, racism, sexism, sexual assault, like none of these have been solved, but, but we can all agree and we're all kind of trying to figure out why like one thing is just absolutely not okay, right? But I do think we need to think, 
revisit why we might be comfortable with some things versus others, particularly if we're coming from a position of power, right? So as she's delivering these jokes to white people, there's a lot of things for those communities to be thinking about, right? And so I, I would say, I think even today, there's a lot of things for people with power to consider with these these topics, right? Like how, how are we perpetrating rape culture? How are we um, continuing to perpetuate fat phobia? How are we perpetuating internalized racism and colorism and all of that? So yeah, just to, you know me, gonna bring the philosophical, it's a pastor's kid in me, gotta bring it back. She's someone with the words of wisdom. I always like to leave my audience with one word. I say, God bless you. Go in peace. May the world have peace. May man have peace. Who knows? I might get lucky. I might get me a little peace every now and then myself. <laughs> I feel like it's an appropriate time to say that when Norma came to Baldwin Wallace and presented about her life and the world and the United States and its democratic whatever back in the day, she was probably one of the only speakers that's talked about, used the word orgasm and related that to a political discussion. So. I mean, I remember seeing a little bit, I think it was like an association with what a, uh, a show that she had some of her dancers on, but there was a short clip where she was doing a comedy bit and type five, perhaps a type three. And the joke was about like how, you know, there's uh, like how she was surrounded by homosexual people and she couldn't find anybody to get sexual with. And it was just like the, it was, again, the, the butt of the joke was her not being able to get any and not that they're like, there are queer people around. And I just, and, and this was like in the, this was like from the eighties. And I was like, Oh, you zigged where I thought you were going to zag masterful stuff. Like she, I mean, she did title this whole thing, I mean, she's just trying to get some. And, like, whom's amongst us? We all want to get some someday. <laughs> These are our hopes and aspirations, right? So, <laughs> Pray every know. night. God, <laughs> give the world a give the world no, peace. I, and let me get a piece, too. <laughs> great, mean, great use of homophones. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, uh, the Lord has been rude to me. I just have to say that. <laughs> it, it was so cool that when, you know, like a lot of times when I'm finishing an interview with Norma or, or when, when she would finish giving a talk or something, you know, she would say, like, you know, God bless everybody and, you know, you're, you know, keep it up, keep up the good work and, and you know she would end her talks just like that you know she just wouldn't give the the sexual punchline right and so it's it's kind of it's lovely that she puts that moment in the comedy album that she still gives her like her blessing to like 
to to everyone in the audience. You know, she just since it's a com- stand up comedy thing, she also adds that punchline to it. I wonder how many times she was in front of a group and she wanted to say it and decided not to say it. The the first track and the last track have like a nice sort of like balance and be in that they're the only times that she's a character in her own special. Like the first in the first track, she had these sort of joke. Her intro was about how black she was and she's sort of introducing herself to this group, you know, the audience or whatever. And she was forming that sort of relationship with them. Like, this is who we are. Like, I'm one of you. And at the end, that sign off is, is sort of a message to these people, right? She's just done probably an hour of comedy or whatever. And so essentially, these are the only times that she is, talks about herself in any kind of way, but these are the two moments that, that reminded me of the Norma that I knew as a a swing dancer going to sit at her talks and her talking about her life or whatever. All of her talks were a lot about like, like, let me tell you what it was like being there, being a black woman at this time, blah, 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 blah. And you can kind of hear that through her stories, you know, through the comedy and stuff. But it was the introduction is like, let me tell you who I am. And the end of all of her talks had always been, I hope you go on to do better and be more authentically you and to, you know, do this dance and have reverence and respect for it. And God bless you. And, and I'm out. So it's like the 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 special like Norma has never changed <laughs> the way that she does a talk. It's always started out like, let me introduce you to who I am and why, like, you know, I should be speaking. Why am I an expert and able to give you this talk? And let me tell you that I hope you, that you do something with this, or I hope that you have peace and you have like love or whatever in your life that you have love for this dance. So I don't know that part kind of like just thinking about that, like Norma is the Norma I know is also on this special in those two little moments. I just wish times were great enough to, you know, she could have been a Carol Burnett or Mary Tyler Moore or, you know, any, you know, I wish the times would have allowed for someone like Norma Miller to really have her own show or her own, you know, I just wish the times would have allotted for that, to see a Black woman like Norma herself have her her own show because I think she would have been wonderful at it, you know? I think that a lot of people who met uh, Norma through her talks at swing dance events, that sort of thing, know Norma as being funny, but for a lot of the wrong reasons. I think a lot of times we have been to these dance events or listen to Norma speak and people would laugh at a thing that Norma said that was just part of her actual experience where it wasn't necessarily a joke, but it was so incredulous to them, the idea of it, that it was, yeah, that sort of like surprise laughter that the element of surprise is what made them laugh about it. But just like a, a personal anecdote, like I only became a brave person during the pandemic. So most of my life I have been a shell of a person. And so, right, me too. But one of my first experiences with Norma and I, you know, you do as much as you can to hide, right? And <laughs> I was at one of these talks and was a dance event in the Bay Area, and again, it was very, it was very, very white. There was only a few people of color in this room. But she's giving this talk, and she's talking about dancing at the Cotton Club. And she's like, "Oh yeah, you could dance on the at the Cotton Club, and if you were, and I think she used the term high yellow, or what people call what we call light skinned, if you had a lighter pigment." She was saying, "Well, if you were, you know, high yellow, you could taxi dance. You people would pay a quarter." And they would be able to dance with you on the regular floor. But if you were too dark, 
you had to dance on stage. <laughs> right? <laughs> I like how half of this audience was like, that one's me, and then this one is me. But she, but she gave this sort of anecdote, and you can start to hear people kind of giggle. And it was like, and it was just her kind of sharing her experience. And unfortunately, she she caught my, like, she, she saw me, and we made a moment of awkward eye contact. And she pointed me out and said, could you stand up? And I was like, like, me? And she was like, girl, yes, you, stand up. And so I stood up, and she was just like, she's like, yeah, yeah, see, you? You can't dance on the dance floor. You got to dance on the stage. And everybody like blew like your eyes got all big. Everyone like blew up laughing. And in that in that moment, it was like she's not. She wasn't. She wasn't making fun of me. She wasn't telling a joke. She was demonstrating. And probably as real as it possibly was during that time, where a person would just walk up to you and say like, "No, you're too dark. You're over here." Where they would hold up a paper bag next to your skin and say like, "Oh." you're on this side, you know, and, and like in that moment, like where other people were like laughing because they thought she had said something funny, that she was hilarious or whatever. It was probably the closest I will ever feel <laughs> to what it was like back then for her. For that moment for me was like reverence or like, I don't know what it was, but it was like sobering. For everyone else, they thought it was hilarious. So sometimes when people like talk about how funny Norma was, I'm, I'm quick to agree with them that Nora was hilarious when she intended to be, but half of the time, the things that we joked, that we laughed about, were never intended to be funny to you. They were never intended to be something that you made light of. And I don't know, it was just like a thing that came to me, I was kind of thinking about my interactions with her and that one. I, I, I am grateful to have had that interaction with her, but I just remembered like, we weren't the only two people in the room and, and everyone else thought it was funny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so.